Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria, coming to you live from New York. Today on the show... After nearly 20 years and 2,500 U.S. lives lost, America's war in Afghanistan finally has an expiration date. It's time to end America's longest war. But what happens after the U.S. and NATO troops pull out? After all of that blood and treasure, will Afghanistan return to Taliban control? Will it become a terrorist haven once again, I'll have an exclusive interview with the president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, and then I will talk to two former national security advisors, Tom Donilon and H.R. McMaster. I'll also ask them about Russia as its military drills and masses on its border with Ukraine. Are they preparing for another invasion? Also, is Myanmar the new Syria? The UN human rights chief says it may get just as bad. Clarissa Ward has logged many days in Syria and is just back from Myanmar. She will describe what she saw in that closed off country. But first, here's my take. To govern is to choose, a French prime minister once said, and this week, President Biden made a difficult strategic choice. He announced a timeline for the withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan, 20 years after they arrived there. For several years, the U.S. has been unwilling to make a choice in Afghanistan, settling into a policy that was more a punt than a strategy. Biden should be commended for actually making a hard choice and not kicking the can down the road one more time. Was it the right choice? I believe so. Let's recall that the United States has tried virtually every possible approach in Afghanistan. Initially, after 9-11, it went in with a light footprint, allying with local forces. After a few years, that strategy was seen as flawed because it gave the Taliban the opportunity to regroup. Under President Obama, Washington expanded coalition forces, so at their peak, they numbered around 130,000. They attempted a comprehensive counterinsurgency policy to provide safety and win the hearts and minds of the locals. But while the surge produced gains, they proved temporary. As U.S. forces withdrew, the Taliban always bounced back. Then Donald Trump announced a mini-surge of his own, adding troops, but claiming that American soldiers would only fight the enemy and do no nation-building. Eventually, he decided he'd had enough and withdrew some of those troops, bringing them down to the current level of 3,500. To understand why the United States couldn't win, we should remember the dictum coined by Henry Kissinger in 1969 when describing the war in Vietnam. 
The guerrilla wins if he does not lose. The conventional army loses if it does not win. The question we don't ask enough is not why America failed, but why the Taliban have succeeded. For the past 20 years, facing the world's most powerful army with the most advanced weaponry and intelligence in history, the ragtag Taliban has survived and often prevailed. We spend a lot of time condemning the Taliban for their fanatical ideology and their treatment of women. We call them terrorists. But we don't seem to ask, despite all that, why have they done so well? Mao once said that guerrillas can succeed only if they can move amongst the people as a fish swims in the sea. The Taliban have managed to do that. Scholars on the ground have found that ethnic identity and solidarity are key to understanding Taliban success far more important than military prowess or economic aid or even good government. Many people, particularly Pashtuns, the largest ethnic group in the country, identify with the Taliban. The Kabul government is often associated with the outsider, with foreigners. In his brilliant book, The Accidental Guerrilla, counterinsurgency expert David Kilcullen recounts a battle in which local Afghans joined the Taliban even though they were not ideologically aligned with the group. They simply felt they had to join the fight and fight against the outsiders. And no matter how much money and services the United States may provide, it remains the outsider. There are other reasons for Taliban success as well. It's difficult to think of a single case in history in which an insurgency was defeated when it had a sanctuary across the border. And the Taliban have enjoyed a haven in Pakistan and help from that country's military. They've also benefited from the massive corruption unleashed by the tens of billions of dollars of American aid and military spending that has utterly distorted the Afghan economy. The U.S. weakened the Kabul government by insisting that it fight opium production, which for better or worse has been a staple agricultural product in provinces like Helmand for centuries. Ultimately, it comes down to a simple reality. An outside force that has an ambitious set of goals establishing a functioning democracy, ending the opium trade, ensuring equality for women, cannot succeed without a powerful, competent, and legitimate local partner. People will claim that this withdrawal shows that the U.S. does not have the capacity to stay the course. They will say American troops should remain in Afghanistan, as they have in South Korea and Germany. But those forces are stationed to deter a foreign invasion, not to hold the country together. American soldiers have stayed in Afghanistan twice as long as the Soviets stayed there and longer than the U.S. did in Vietnam. It is time for them to come home. Go to CNN.com for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Let's get right to my exclusive interview with the president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani. Welcome back to the show, Mr. President. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, when we've talked in the past, you have said you would support a positive peace uh, in Afghanistan, but not what the Taliban, you said, sometimes seem to want, which is the peace of the grave. Which one of these is likely uh, following President Biden's announcement of a U.S. withdrawal? The announcement has been a game changer. 
because the unexpected for the region and for the Taliban has happened. The announcement was not unexpected for me. We have been deliberating about, on, about this for two years. Now it's a time for recalculation. For us, it's a time of opportunity for Taliban and for Pakistan. It's a moment of choice. Will they opt to become a credible international stakeholder with rules of the game for a peaceful heart of Asia and connectivity or for opting for chaos? Equally for Taliban, the major excuse that this is a war to get the international forces out of Afghanistan is over. There is no religious justification left for the war. Political settlement is a must, but the ball clearly is in the court of Taliban and their supporters. It sounds like, Mr. President, uh, you support the president's announcement, or at least you think that there can be a positive uh, effect from that announcement. I respect the president's decision. I have always made clear on your show, particularly, that I never discussed numbers or whether the United States should stay long. A strategic decision has been made. The implications of this at the operational level, tactical level, in re-strategizing for the region, for the Islamic world, and for us at the national level is the imperative. The context is radically changed. My style of working is that when context changes, my entire energy is focused on working in the new context. And I'm focused on the opportunities, and I think the opportunities are real. Um, during the uh, previous administration, during the Trump administration, when they were trying to reach a deal with the Taliban, it would often be leaked to members of the press that you were the obstacle, that you were unwilling to share power with the Taliban. Uh, was that true and ha has that changed? It wasn't true. Because I ran on a peace platform. I think it should be remembered that was I who secured the first ceasefire in our history in 2018. The question was, who was going to own and lead the peace process. What we proposed to the Trump administration two years ago is that if you want to withdraw, deal with us, the legitimate government of Afghanistan, not with the Taliban on that issue. They made choices, and because of that, they needed a figure to blame things upon. I was never the obstacle, and again, in preparation for the Istanbul conference, I went to my nation and clearly indicated that I was willing to reduce my elected terms of office, but my condition was a democratic succession, where the people of Afghanistan would decide on the succession. For me, it's the principle, not power. Power is an instrument of service, not something personal. Um, when you think about the Taliban going forward, do you imagine uh, a national unity government? Do you imagine that they are simply going to seek 
uh, a military conquest of Kabul. What is your sense of what, what, where will the Taliban go from this? Well, I, what I hope they will go for and what they're likely to go for are likely to be different things. <laughs> what I'd like to them is to seek, seize the new context where a true national political settlement is made that integrates them within the government, within the society, within the economy. And that we form a government of peace for a brief period, culminating in an election that is internationally supervised and monitored, and in order to make sure that the wounds of the past 42 years, particularly past 20 years, are healed, we will need a discussion of a national compact in the preparation, the justification, and a approval of any peace deal should take place in the Lojerga, our historical institution, where all walks of life are brought. And it's imperative that the Taliban sit with their Afghan sisters and brothers, if that's what they consider us. Next on GPS, when we come back, I will ask President Ghani about the future of women in Afghanistan who had essentially no rights when American forces arrived in 2001. What happens when those troops leave? And we are back here on GPS where the president of Afghanistan, President Ashraf Ghani, is joining me exclusively. Mr. President, let me ask you a question that is on the minds of many people uh, in the event, you know, given U.S. Uh, forces withdrawing, given potential Taliban resurgence, which is what happens to women in Afghanistan. 20 years ago under the Taliban, they couldn't go to school, they could barely leave their houses, they couldn't work. Uh, women in Afghanistan today is a completely different position. Um, there have been massive strides. Is there a danger of all that being reversed? Well, of course, there's a risk, but the women of Afghanistan I'm very proud of now speak for themselves, organize for themselves, and have, nation, and have turned into a nationwide movement. If the Taliban want to be stakeholders in the future, they need to recognize that women of Afghanistan aspire to the type of freedom that existed during the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Don't forget, uh, Khadija, the wife of the Prophet, was one of the richest women on earth uh, at that time. There is a culture of participation in commerce, in learning, in literacy, in others. So it's crucial that this gain, and as long as I have the honor of serving Afghanistan, every week, every day, you will see further steps for enhancing the role of the women, and particularly the education of the girls and their vocational capabilities. The women of Afghanistan, the young children, whom I see regularly on presidential grounds, aspire to be presidents. Uh, they're pilots, they're ambassadors, they're ministers. The horizon is open to them. This would be one of the greatest injustices in terms of human rights in history if we don't respect this and consolidate it. 
let me ask you about the regional dynamic uh, with U.S. forces withdrawing. Uh, reports suggest that Pakistan has never really stopped supporting the Taliban, that the Taliban, in fact, during the negotiations uh, in, in Doha, the Taliban representatives flew back and forth to Doha directly from Pakistan, not even bothering to pretend that they were in the, as they used to do in the past. Um, is, is Pakistan going to allow a, uh, an independent neutral Afghanistan or are they likely to, uh, to interfere? And is that interference likely to be solidified by a very strong Chinese support? Well, first of all, it's a moment of choice for Pakistan. All its calculations have been wrong. Verbally, the leaders of Pakistan all fortunately acknowledge that they do not want the Taliban government in Afghanistan, that they would like to see a peaceful, stable, democratic uh, government in Afghanistan. We are key to their prosperity. You know, the rate of growth in Pakistan could enhance by 2% in a stable and connected Afghanistan. We have a world to win together. So there are two options. Win, win, win. Connect to Central Asia through us. Share in the joint prosperity through the partnership for peace. Gain international credibility and support that they are all in need of. Or opt for chaos. The country that would be most damaged by insecurity or a renewed civil war in Afghanistan is Pakistan. And in that case, it'd be a lose, lose, lose proposition. It seems to me clear that Pakistan has chosen to ally with China in the emerging bipolar order. Has China decided that it will support Pakistan unyieldingly? Uh, would China support a Taliban uh, offensive of the kind you just described? No. China is going to have 16, estimated 16, over 16% rate of growth. China, I believe, is not an interventionist power. It does not want to get engaged with military uh, or proxy wars. And Pakistan, in terms of its foreign policy, obviously is hedging between China and other countries because it's still its reliance on the rest of the region is quite significant. Pakistan can become an anchor of regional stability if it opts for peace and regional cooperation. Uh, the discourse of Pakistan has changed. There was a security conference in Islamabad where the talk is really significantly about harmony and uh, cooperation. Uh, to expect that China, after the great COVID reset and the significant adverse impact, will get involved in regional conflicts directly, I think is remote. Furthermore, we have a lot of positive relationship with China and the growth of China now is going to be the factor as is growth of India for regional prosperity. All of us, I think, are strong stakeholders not to get involved. And for Afghanistan, we do not want a replacement uh, in terms of seeking to replace the United States and NATO 
with some form of patronage, we want to have a multi-aligned policy where we are friends with everybody and not part of their quarrels. And hence, our agenda of permanent neutrality that will benefit everybody. Thank you, President Ghani, for that important conversation. For more of it, go to CNN.com, where you will hear President Ghani's eloquent message to America and specifically to the Americans who have served in Afghanistan over the last two decades. Next on GPS, Donald Trump's national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, and Barack Obama's national security advisor, Tom Donlan, who disagree on Afghanistan and will also talk about Russia and more. Moscow has amassed what Secretary of State Tony Blinken this week called the largest concentration of Russian forces on Ukraine's border since 2014. That was the year when Russia invaded Ukraine and took Crimea. The U.S. and its allies worry about what Moscow might be up to this time. U.S. Army retired Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster joins me now. He was Donald Trump's second national security advisor. He is the author of Battlegrounds, the fight to defend the free world. General McMaster, pleasure to have you on. Let me start with Afghanistan and ask, you have been skeptical of attempts to make peace with the Taliban. You referred to them when Donald Trump tried to do it after you left as a Munich-style appeasement. What do you think of President Biden's uh, plan for withdrawal? Well, I think it's an utter disaster, Fareed. And I think what's worth pointing out is that we are engaged in an extraordinary degree of self-delusion, what I call a battleground strategic narcissism. The tendency to define the world only in relation to us and assume that what we do is decisive toward achieving a favorable outcome. And this self-delusion about the Taliban includes this idea you know, that the Taliban really wants to share power. The Taliban, Fareed, is determined to reimpose the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And we know the hell that would be for the Afghan people and the world because they did it between 1996 and, and 2001. The second element of self-delusion is that there's this bold line between the Taliban uh, and other terrorist organizations. I mean, the Taliban operates in an area that is really a terrorist ecosystem that spans the Afghanistan and Pakistan border, which is what makes it the geostrategic, as well as one of the ideological centers of the fight against jihadist terrorists. And then finally, there's this, uh, this idea that if, <laughs> this, this narcissistic idea that if we, if we disengage from a war, the war ends, as if the Taliban's gonna look around and say, well, the Americans aren't here, you know, let's stop fighting. It's worth pointing out, Fareed, that we have lost no soldiers over the last 12 months. The Afghans uh, have lost over 4,000 of courageous soldiers and policemen trying to protect the freedoms that they've enjoyed since 2001. I think that should count for something. And I think what's astounding and is a moral travesty as well as a strategic failure is that we're throwing them under the bus on the way out. I mean, we made concession after concession. You know, we, we didn't we did we didn't uh, we didn't insist on a, on a ceasefire. We forced the Afghan government to release 5,000 of some of the most heinous people on earth, and and we we keep talking about well, what more can the Afghan government do for peace? Well, hey, how about Haibatullah Akhundzada and the Taliban, who have stepped up assassinations and mass murder attacks ac- across the country? Uh, I mean, what what about the Taliban's role? Uh, in, in affecting peace. It is an extraordinary reversal of morality is what we're watching. 
and I think we saw it in, in the president's speech. Frankly, Fareed, I think I saw it in your opening <laughs> as well. And you know, when we, we know already that in the areas where the Taliban has been able to regain control, that they're closing girls' schools, they're flogging women publicly, you know, and how long is it before, you know, they start mass executions in the soccer stadiums again? So I, I think it's a, it is a, it's a travesty free that we're going to look back on with, uh, with shame. Um, let me ask you, General, uh, I asked President Ghani whether he thought the Taliban could take control of the country. Uh, and this, is in, this is in the web extra part of the interview. Uh, but, but his response, if I can summarize, was no. Uh, the, the Afghan National Army has been fighting 95 percent of the battle for the last few years. Where you know we, we have a lot of support in the country. The Taliban is not that popular. And most importantly, unlike South Vietnam, the U.S. and NATO are not uh, are not saying goodbye. They're going to continue to give us aid. They're going to continue to give us uh, uh, intelligence support. So he seemed pretty confident that the Kabul government could hold. Uh, you seem more skeptical. Well, I, I think if we do maintain that support, the Kabul government can hold because people don't want to return to the Taliban. I mean, th think about what's happened in Afghanistan, Fareed, since 2001. This is another part of the story that I wish would receive more coverage. Afghanistan has transformed since 2001. You know, Kabul has grown by by orders of magnitude in a country where maybe there, you know, there were just a few phones because communication was so limited. Everybody has a cell phone. It is the most open society in terms of freedom of the press, press and freedom of expression. Now, of course, the Taliban hates this idea, right? This is why they're murdering journalists. This is why they attacked the American University of Afghanistan and gunned down young men and women who are trying to build a better future for their country. So, of course, they deserve our support. Uh, if we provide that support, I believe that they can hold on. But, of course, what we will see at the very least with the disengagement of some of our very important combat support to Afghans is an intensification of the war uh, and a return to violence potentially on the scale of the civil war from 92 to 96, which, as you know, was devastating and created a refugee crisis of colossal scale. It destabilized Pakistan as well, a country which, by the way, has nuclear weapons. So the stakes, I think, are extremely high for Reed, and, and we're really not talking about the, 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 uh, the war uh, in a meaningful, accurate way. We are engaging in this strategic narcissism and, and self-delusion. General McMaster, thank you for that powerful, intelligent critique. Uh, from Donald Trump's national security advisor to Barack Obama's, I'll talk to Tom Donilon about why he disagrees with General McMaster on Biden's Afghanistan withdrawal. My next guest is Tom Donilon. He was President Obama's national security advisor. Tom, welcome. Let me ask you, we've heard a lot about, uh, about Afghanistan. From the point of view of national security that the president has to think about, is what is going on in Afghanistan worth the continuation of American uh, military presence there, or is President Biden's uh, decision correct? I think the decision is correct, Fareed. I listened carefully to my friend H.R. McMaster's analysis, and I think what it would be, essentially, is a prescription for being at war with the Taliban without end, with no end point. Uh, I think if you step back and you sit from the with uh, taking the perspective of the president and you look at the global threat picture faced by the United States today, as it is today, not 20 years ago, and you take into account what we have accomplished in Afghanistan to address the al-Qaeda and ISIS uh, threat, uh, you would not have a significant military presence uh, continued in, uh, in, uh, in Afghanistan. 
um, the threat, the terror threat, which is very real, uh, and the uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS are the, are the principal uh, Sunni threats that we face uh, in the world. They've dispersed geographically. It's not uh, contained in just a single geographic uh, area. Additionally, Farid, you know, the president uniquely is charged with making decisions about where men and women in the United States for, uh, military forces are to be put at risk. Uh, and I think in, in this case, uh, to enter into a, uh, a conflict without end, uh, to continue um, to try to find an elusive set of conditions for, uh, uh, for withdrawal, I don't think is in the United States' interest. And it won't remain static. You know, H.R. General McMaster cited the fact that there hasn't been a U.S. troop killed since February of 2020. That's during the course of this negotiation uh, between the Taliban, the United States, and including the Afghan government. That won't remain static, though. Uh, in fact, I think if the United States made a decision and announced a decision to remain in a combat role, in a military-deployed role in Afghanistan, you'd see uh, an, an escalation. And last, I'd say, Farid, uh, we have the capability to deal uh, with the threats that emerge from, uh, from Afghanistan or might emerge from Afghanistan. Uh, we have uh, the, the, the capabilities that we've developed over the last 20 years are extraordinary with respect to intelligence and over-the-horizon military capabilities, doctrine, uh, and weaponry. And I think we have the capability to deal with it, should it arise. At this point, you know, the intelligence assessment is, of course, uh, that al-Qaeda uh, does not have the capability at this point to execute an external threat against the United States. But should that arise, the United States has the capability to do that. You know, Bill Burns said the other day in front of the Congress that the United States would develop, and we had the ability uh, to uh, develop uh, the uh, intelligence uh, outlook to anticipate and contest uh, al-Qaeda if, if it should try to reconstitute. Uh, and the mission, I think, has changed uh, in terms of its focus to a diplomatic, humanitarian, and economic mission. There is leverage uh, in, the, in, that, in that case. So I think it's, a, it's, it's, it's the right decision uh, after 20 years of military operations. You know, there are limits at the end of the day that we've discovered with respect uh, to what the United States military can accomplish with respect to the internal dynamics and conflicts and uh, political challenges inside Afghanistan. So I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a realistic decision. I think it's the right decision. And again, to start, to end where I started, if you, if you take the lens back and you look at the world, you look at the opportunities and challenges the United States has in the world today, uh, you would not have a, you would not continue a military mission uh, in, uh, in Afghanistan because you do have the capabilities to deal uh, with the threat. Let me ask you, Tom, uh, about another thing that have big thing that has happened this week, which is the Russian uh, massing of forces on Ukraine, uh, which happened at the same time that the, the United States has announced these sanctions uh, against Russia. Uh, is are we spiraling downwards to a possible Russian invasion of Ukraine? What do you think is going on? Well, as you, as you said uh, at the top of the segment, uh, the Russians have on the Crimea and Ukraine border amassed as large a force as it had uh, in 2000 and 2014. The scale and the scope is 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 quite uh, is quite similar. Now, unlike 2014, they've made no effort to hide this buildup. Uh, indeed, have in many ways kind of promoted this buildup. It's not clear what the what Russia's intentions are. Whether it is to try to intimidate whether it's try to, uh, to extract concessions from the Zelensky government with respect to uh, Ukraine, um, whether it's a, a, a show of force, whether it's an exercise. It doesn't, it's not routine, that's for, that's for certain. But it's not clear ultimately what the, uh, what the, uh, what the purpose is of the buildup or whether it's a preparation for a military action. Again, they're not, they're not, uh, they're not in any way trying to hide uh, their, their buildup. So that would be, I think, you'd probably bet against that at this point. But it's, not, it's just not clear at this point. But what I will say is this, Breed, 
uh, which is why it, uh, it, does, it, it deserves close attention because of its scale, but also because the fact is that Putin has shown a high tolerance for reckless behavior and risky behavior, you know, whether it, uh, uh, whether it be uh, the uh, invasion uh, of Ukraine and the takeover of Crimea or the interventions in the Middle East or 2020 election interference. Uh, the Put Putin has shown a high tolerance for risky behavior. And so I think it bears close watching. And we need to be clear about what the response would be by the United States and the world if, in fact, he engaged in a military action uh, in, uh, in and against uh, Ukraine, which, have to, which, have, which would include, I think, a number of, uh, a number of, of kind of expanded sanctions. Um, I think continued uh, and expanded uh, support of uh, defensive military weaponry for the Ukrainians and other things. But it bears close watching for sure. Tom Donald, pleasure to have you on. Thank you, sir. Next on GPS, will the world do anything about the spiraling violence and brutality in Myanmar, which is only getting worse? I will talk to CNN's Clarissa Ward, who was in that country, when we come back. Michelle Bachelet, the UN's human rights chief, warned this week that Myanmar today reminds her of Syria at the beginning of its own horrific civil war. She points to the brutality, the spiraling violence, and most importantly, perhaps, the world community's feeble response to both conflicts. Is it a fair comparison? Will Myanmar become the next Syria? Clarissa Ward is CNN's chief international correspondent and the author of On All Fronts. She's a veteran Syria reporter who is recently back from Myanmar. She was granted access by the Tadmado, Myanmar's military, which seized power on February the 1st in a coup. Welcome, Clarissa. Thank you, Fred. So I know, you know, when you go into these kinds of circumstances, it's extraordinarily heroic, but you are often uh, surrounded by government minders and, and security were you able to get, was there any point at which you felt as though you were able to get a sense of how people on the ground in Myanmar are reacting to this fairly brutal uh, crackdown? Well, our expectations were very limited for exactly the reasons you say. We were surrounded by minders, a convoy of soldiers. We had plainclothes security officers filming our every move. We had translators, you name it, we had it. And so we didn't anticipate that we would be able to really interact with ordinary people. But we had this extraordinary moment where we finally were given permission just to shoot some video in a market, a simple, ordinary market, simple, ordinary people. And within minutes of us taking out our camera, even though we were so clearly surrounded by security forces, one man flashed the three-finger Hunger Games salute. That salute has become the symbol of defiance against the military coup. And then he came up to us. I asked him, why did you show us that gesture? He said, because we want justice. And then another man came up and said, we're not frightened. And then another woman came up and said, we want democracy. We don't want to go back to the dark age. And there was this profoundly humbling and moving moment where I suddenly heard the entire market was galvanized with the sound of people banging pots and pans. That's, of course, a sort of old tradition to ward off evil spirits, but it's become the signature sound of resistance in Myanmar. And I was so struck by the extraordinary courage of people who were able to demand democracy and dignity, even standing right in front of our junta minders and guards. 
Um, now, we do know that the Chinese and the Russians have supported the military. Uh, what's striking to me is even the, uh, the neighboring democracies like India and Indonesia have not raised any protests. It seems as though the, the, the military has the external support that they need or certainly no, no real external pressure. And that's why people were so desperate to talk to us, because there is a sense of crushing disappointment from the people in Myanmar that the international community is not able to act in concert and condemn universally what's happening and essentially put a stop to it. This is to be expected, many would say, of China and Russia. Uh, we've seen them adopt this kind of a stance to hamstring the UN Security Council before. But as you said, it's those Southeast nations, Southeast Asian nations that I think have also generated a huge amount of disappointment, people really wanting uh, to see them come out and condemn the violence, condemn the coup. They're not seeing that. And that's exactly why they're losing hope in the process of the international community being able to do anything to remedy this situation. I want to ask you about that comparison to Syria, because one of the reasons that Syria became so very bloody was that the regime and others exploited the many deep cleavages within Syrian society between the Alawites and the, and the Sunnis, between the Islamists and, the, and ISIS and the secularists. Uh, Myanmar has lots of ethnic uh, diverse, uh, diversity, lots of different groups, and of course the Rohingya. Um, is it likely, do you, do you, can you imagine a kind of downward spiral where, these, it, where it becomes you know, really a kind of all against all civil war? I can, but not exactly for the reasons that you're describing. Um, there's no question that actually the Tatmadaw tried to exploit some of those divisions and tried to woo some of these ethnic groups. That appears to have backfired um, and they're not playing ball. But when I look at the scenes that I saw of ordinary people who are basically willing to risk everything, march into a hail of bullets to demand democracy and to demand dignity. And when I look at a regime that is essentially willing to kill its way into victory, to destroy its own country, to protect its own interests, and then you also have the complexity of many different ethnic groups. And on top of that, the sort of ineffectiveness of the international community standing on the sidelines, wringing its hands, issuing statements and condemnations, but not really being able to affect any forceful kind of robust action. That is what makes my stomach drop and my heart ache when I think of the potential for Myanmar to devolve into a bloody civil war along the lines of Syria. Uh, powerful and courageous reporting. Clarissa Ward, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.